Welcome to the May 2020 edition of Discourse. I'm David Robertson, uh, your host. Hopefully you know my voice by now. Discourse is our, I guess, our critical take on the category of religion in the news and current affairs. Um, I'm delighted with the guests this week. Um, I'm going to pass over for them to introduce themselves. Suzanne, maybe you could start. Yes, I am Suzanne Owen. I'm a reader in religious studies at Leeds Trinity University. And I research indigenous pe- uh, people and uh, druids. And a long time uh, friend of the project. Uh, you can check out some of her appearances in the archives. Um, another long term friend of the project and first time discourse panelist i guess is uh, craig martin thanks for having me um i'm craig martin a professor of religious studies at st thomas aquinas college in um, new york state um i study mostly discourse analysis and ideology critique um sometimes having to do with what we call religion sometimes not um but yeah uh thanks for inviting me to the conversation today well, thanks for taking part, and I'll try and remember the American pronunciation of Craig. It's uh, difficult for me as a Scot. <laughs> I tend to, Wait, how, do you to it, how do you pronounce that as a Scot? That's Craig. Okay, that's close it's enough a Gallic, to me. <laughs> well, it's a Gallic. It's a Gallic word meaning mountain. So, no. uh, you know, well, you're, I'm not feeling very yeah. mountainous today, although I have gained <laughs> some weight while we're in quarantine because I've been eating way too many pretzels. That's a good uh, link into our first story, which Suzanne's going to talk about. And I, f- I think that coronavirus is going to loom large, much like a mountain, in many of the stories we get today. Uh, Suzanne, uh, tell us about uh, pagans. Yes, this I saw um, posted about um, Twitter because I follow a couple of pagan groups. Basically, as it was um, Beltane Eve, um, which is the end of April and Beltane the 1st of May, the, one of the Sun newspaper columnists decided to use the occasion to mock and ridicule pagans with a little comment piece um, titled Trouble Brewing, Spare a Thought for Britain's Vibrant Community of Pagans and Witches. Um, it's an important, for, um, for Beltane, it's an important festival for many assorted oddballs. And um, the Offending line is normally they would be stripped off and shagging goats around a blazing fire. But because of uh, social distancing, it's going to be a very hands-off affair. And this prompted a couple of responses um, that I saw. One uh, first one I saw was from the Pagan Federation. Um, and then it was the uh, Police Pagan Association, which gave a very full response and encouraged people to complain um, to um, the um, the press standards um, organization, independent press standards organization. And then the Druid Network also um, commented and added a little bit of humor by saying that if a pagan did come across the article in the sun, they would uh, have no trouble finding something to light a Beltane fire with. Uh, they quite like that. But um, the story raises a lot of uh, issues to do with assumptions, both about religion and also with particular views about paganism being 
fair game for mockery and ridicule um, in popular media. I was struck by some of the language of it. It very much reminded me of uh, the early kind of news stories about um, about you know the Gardnerian uh, Wiccans very early on, and the kind of focus on scandal and yeah. um, open kind of mockery. Um, Craig, you had something to to add to this. Well, I was wondering if because um, I'm I'm less familiar with these organizations, can you say a little bit about what is the Sun? Like, what's the reputation of the Sun? And then also, oh, yeah. what's what's the Pagan Police Society? Is it a a group designed to police news to protect pagans, or is it like policemen who are pagans? Yes, I actually um, didn't know about the um, Police Pagan Association, and it appears to be um, police who are pagans. Okay. Um, from what I could find out. Um, the Sun newspaper is probably the most notorious popular rag that um, is infamous for having naked page three girls. And um, everybody says that it's good for sport commentary, but I never really checked that out. Um, <laughs> but it's basically, yeah, you know, it's a popular um, newspaper that's a tabloid. It's also um, strongly conservative in its political leanings, populist conservative. Um, and uh, was it not also the Sun that was? They had to close the Sunday Sun because of hacking people's. Yes, um, I know News of the World. Uh, yeah, but I think the News of the World changed its name to the Sunday Sun. It was oh. or the Sun on Sunday. I think they were essentially the same uh, newspaper, despite the different name. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so it is uh, the most notorious. Uh, tabloid rag. It sounds a little bit like our, um, our uh, New York Post, which their headlines seem to be designed to get a laugh more than to tell the news. Yeah, it's get a laugh, but here is also um, it's also a very normative uh, model of religion. You know, as uh, Suzanne said, it's it's striking. The sort of open mockery is uh, quite striking and actually quite unusual in recent years um yeah. well yeah. And, you know late last year there was maybe more so in the states than in the uk but there was a definite positive swing in media especially online media coverage of um you know various forms of paganism and other kinds of magical practices lots of attention in uh lifestyle blogs and and instagram um, influencers and things like that. So it's quite striking to see this swing back to um, kind of laughing that they're all weirdos and that magic doesn't work anyway. I wonder if there's a broader kind of agenda at work there. Um, yes, I think um, there is, I guess, still this feeling with those that want to, um, like this um, um, columnist named Rod Little, I actually looked him up. He's been um, a, involved in controversial uh, reporting before or commenting. And um, it's the idea that it is a made-up religion. So that means that it's, um, you know, it, 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 there's no um, regard for, you know, whether anyone's feelings would be hurt or anything like that. Um, and, and it does sort of set it against um, a normative Christian view, as you say, that there seems to be a move maybe back towards the mainstream or towards traditionalism 
um, in that sense. It's hard well, that's to say not... because it is it was unusual piece, as you say, because there hadn't been something quite so mocking in a while, and uh, and then that just sort of pops out like that. Well, it's not a bad link to another story, one that I brought in, which was uh, reported in the Guardian um, mm. just yesterday on a Sunday, of course, because it's religion uh, reporting, <laughs> um, which. Uh, so it, it talked about um, the headline was British public turned to prayer as one in four tune into religious services. And basically the idea was that um, the country was turning on mass back into uh, traditional uh, Christian prayer and religious services. Um, reading between the lines, there's there's a couple of interesting things. One is this kind of idea of normative Christianity and its connection to national identity at times of uh, crisis. Um, but there's there's another more interesting aspect. It, if you dig into it, it turns out that it comes from a survey of 2,000 people um, wow, that's carried cool. out by uh, a Christian aid um, agency. So it's a Christian charity asked... 2,000 people and then generalised this out into the entire country. Um, I would like to know where uh, this happened. It's certainly not UK-wide. It seems to be talking about Church of England particularly, so I, I doubt you would find this to be the case in Scotland, for instance, where there's a, been a 10% drop um, in the last 10 years and 10% uh, lower identification with Christianity than in England. Um, but the interesting thing was that the report is based on it's predominantly young people that they're reporting. A third of young adults between 18 to 34 have watched or listened to an online or broadcast religious service, compared with one in five adults over the age of 55. Um, now, actually, if you think about it, that, that seems counterintuitive because uh, uh, Christianity and um, especially kind of Church of England and stuff we associate with an older um, demographic. But if you think about it, it's actually only those who listen to it online or broadcast that don't normally. So, yes, younger people are going to be more likely to access these things online. Um, but only one in five of those who tuned in in the past few weeks say they have never gone to church. So it's actually only a one in five raise um, amongst some young people in somewhere in the south of England, apparently. Yeah. But nonetheless, interesting. You wonder how many people that equates to in the end if you take the exact number. Um, but as you say, I think it just um, reflects the usage of online services as more frequent among young people anyway. And also, um, I think of older people who... who do have a church community that they're part of they're probably still in touch with them and not necessarily you know doing online services per se yeah well that's it one in five who've tuned into services in the past few weeks say they've never gone to church so the rise is not one in four mm. the rise is um it's one fifth of one in four so what's that one twenty fifth or something yeah um, because four of um, four out of the five extra people were already going to church the only thing they're doing is they're accessing it online rather than going in person yeah so they're misleading um it, like many headlines do it's misleading mm -hmm. it's one in 20 not one in four um but yeah uh 
but even so, I think it's interesting that we get reporting from the relatively liberal um, left-leaning Guardian saying people are going back to church and praying again, and we get reporting the same weekend from the right-wing populist um, son saying these pagans are are a bunch of scruffy, crazy people. Yeah. Um, right when we're in this weird time where, you know, um, people are being told to rally round and follow the Prime Minister and don't challenge this and that, and the Queen's appearing on television to tell us about stuff. And um, there's Craig, uh, Craig might tell us about, um, I mean, Trump's been making similar kinds of things. Um, well, how can you even begin to talk about the U.S. situation? Um, there's so many things. Uh, I don't. I, I think that what stands out to me in the American context is how many um, conservative Christian groups are protesting um, their right to go out and also um, insisting that they ought to have the right to attend their church despite the quarantine. Um, some churches have continued meeting, and as you can imagine, uh, they have higher cases of coronavirus because they're all getting together. I heard a story, something like uh, a church had a choir practice with like 40 people. A couple weeks later, found out that 35 of those 40 people or something like that were, were found um, positive for for having coronavirus. Um, uh, what do you say about that? I mean, I guess that from their perspective, uh, maybe all things work together for the good of those who love God, and uh, they don't really have to worry about it in the long run. But from an outsider's perspective, it really seems like they're working against their own best interest because they're exposing themselves to the risk. Yes, I think um, one of the things, I'm not sure what happens when it's reported in the U.S., but every time it's mentioned in the BBC, I only look at the BBC online news, they also state the Pew study that said 66% of um, Americans surveyed do not want the end of lockdown. Yeah, it does seem like, uh, well... I don't know. Do you know where they did that survey? Because I, I think that responses to that that survey would probably depend a lot on whether you were um, in, uh, talking about urban or suburban environments, or if you were uh, talking about democratic states or more Republican leaning states. Um, yeah. like the, the response, how it's been handled in the state I live in, New York been completely different than it than how it's been handled in um states like georgia where my where my mom lives um where they're they're still going to church whereas up here in new york i think that most people would think it's stupid that you would still go to church during this um so it's it's there's a weird combination or conflation of political and religious views i think um in the South that these, that, well, they're, they're acting like the, the quarantine is intentionally an attack on their um, religious freedoms. Uh, and they're, they're using that discourse to, to mount uh, on a, a, you know, a response. Well, there is though this national myth of sort of rugged individuality and, um, you know, uh, not being told what to do by the state that's part of the American imagination of itself. Whereas Britain's 
and especially England's self-imagination has much more to do with the end of the Second World War. So the collectivist idea of, um, you know, pulling together uh, the welfare state and the NHS and these kind of things is kind of there as well. Um, And it's interesting to see that those uh, national myths being appealed to in these different ways um, from this, you know, this one same threat. But of course, the I, I'm I'm wondering as well about the the relationship with Christianity, though, because that's a relatively recent thing. That's it wasn't until the the Cold War that that became such a an important part of the American imagination of itself. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean. Uh... Uh, conservative Christians, you know, at the turn of the 20th century were a lot more comfortable talking about social justice issues and using communist or Marxist ideas, even if they rejected, you know, the atheism associated with Marxism. They liked the idea of collectively making the world a better place. It was bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Um, But then after uh, or during the Cold War, it, it was fundamentally realigned with the type of individualism. Mm. what about the wheels there was um trump's speech right at the beginning actually well i mean about a month ago when he was talking about wanting all of the churches to be filled for easter now i don't know if it was meant this way but to me it definitely seemed like uh you know the partly it was well i i um don't want to be ruled by you know the vi- don't want to be limited by the virus but i also thought that there was a there was a an element of um by we want you to go out and be proper christian americans in the face of challenge um and yeah. I, I, how common that is from a president it seems quite striking yeah i i think that um american presidents have long since realized that playing to some of their base by saying things like this um, or using various types of dog whistle politics, um, they're, they're able to elicit or manufacture consent in a way from those communities, even if they're not acting in those communities' best interest, they're like, well, the president wants us to go to church and that's what we want. So um, we must approve of whatever he's doing then. It's interesting that the protesters all claim to be siding with Trump. Um, and that is a very peculiar thing to see, that they're fighting against health workers and everything and claiming that they're on the side of Trump. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know mo- what more to say about that. It, it, um, it, I find so much of it baffling. Yeah, we um, we talked about the coronavirus quite extensively in the last uh, episode, so we don't have to to linger too much on it. Um, I do want to uh, raise this other story that I came across also from the Guardian, and it's it's still on coronavirus, and it's also still on religious minorities, so it follows quite well. Um, and that is the spread of um, conspiracy theories in India, which connect the spread of the coronavirus with uh, Muslim minority. Um, And basically, well, there's been a few attacks uh, recently, but we're looking at a widespread um, idea that the Islamic minority are deliberately spreading coronavirus to Hindus worldwide. Um, 
this being described as a corona jihad and there are allegations of Muslims um, spitting in food and uh, deliberately infecting water supplies um, mm. and this idea that that Muslims are and uh, that they are acting as coronavirus terrorists basically um, they've seen businesses attacked um, they've seen uh, people distributing rations to to Muslim communities have you know those have been held up people have been attacked now of course there was already um, uh, you know militant activity against um, Muslims in India there was a in fact recently maybe um, a few months back um, the Delhi pogrom for instance where um, houses and shops and stuff were vandalized and there's been a, you know distribution of of propaganda um for quite a long time which was already picking up um it's very interesting to see the way that this is immediately connected um onto coronavirus um we see the same in US and UK uh, conspiracy theories um around COVID-19. In the UK, those are mostly revolving around uh, the 5G mobile network. Um, in the US, they're largely connected to the QAnon um, material around the idea that Trump's working to a secret plan. Um, but it's fast. all of these were already widespread conspiracy theories before COVID started. And it's fascinating to see the way that these narratives have immediately um, jumped onto these existing stories. Uh, it, it, it makes me think of um, <clears throat> Leslie Duro Smith's book, um, Righteous Rhetoric, where she looks at how um, conservative Christian evangelical feminist groups um, uh, actually do things that a lot of leftists wouldn't think are feminist, but, but they, they promote this, um, national, uh, American conservative Christian female identity. She points out that they, because they're evangelicals, they describe their views as unchanging over time, that, that they depict evangelicalism as a set of doctrines and beliefs that is unchanging. And what it means to be an authentic evangelical is to hold those authentic doctrines as true. But what she does is tracks how their political views are constantly changing over time. She followed their website for, I think, like half a decade or a decade and noted how um, their political views change. But each time they recast it in a way that makes it that draws attention away from the shift, um, that their their discourse is really pliable and easy to adjust to new circumstances as long as you hide your adjustment. So it, it doesn't shock me that people who already hate Muslims might use this as an opportunity to um, uh, in integrate the coronavirus into a, an existing discourse to reinforce the social antipathies that already exist. Yes, I'm David. This is uh, what happened with the 5G conspiracy as well, which had already been started um, before. That was then um, just adjusted, as Craig said, to um, include the coronavirus um, fears. 
and linking them together. So the view was that uh, 5G actually, you know, helps spread or, or makes the illness worse or something like that. Um, so it can tie into their narrative. I was just struck also by the Indian story for a different reason, though, and that is how uh, much the state was, and very much like in Britain it happened as well, I'm not sure about in the U.S., but where it's people that are spreading the virus and the government are kind of blameless. The government are, you know, are great and doing everything right and blah, 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 whereas the wrongdoers are people. And so in this case, um, the BJP, you know, the Indian government, were blaming Muslims for spreading the virus. And in the way that here in the UK, uh, people are blamed, you know, the regular you know, general population. It's not a religious um, or ethnic issue here, at least not overtly, but uh, and not like in India where it was tagged on to existing tensions uh, from, well, you know, the the racial thing is maybe clearer in the case of the states where um, it's, you know, Trump's determination to connect it to China, for instance. But I think oh, the, yeah, complication, that's, that's, the, oh, the complication... Oh, sorry, that's, that's what I was going to say, that, that um, Trump's got this already existing discourse on how China is bad and China is taking all the jobs away from Americans, etc. Um, so he's insisted... Um, at various points on calling this like the Chinese virus instead of the coronavirus. Um, and apparently the, I've seen a few news stories about there's been um, some uh, attacks on Asian Americans as a result of this um, public rhetoric about China's the problem. I don't think that there's been nearly as much violence against Asian Americans as, as this report from India Um describes but uh, there's some some still there 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 are effects of discourse the way that we talk about these things has effects on the world that harm some people this did happen here to begin with um i don't think there was any political blaming here on this side but they were picking it up anyway and there were people you know who looked chinese or might not have been but they looked at or who were attacked um in the uk well, the complication here was that we just had a long period of the discussion as to whether Brexit was motivated by, you know, ethnic or nationalist kind of sentiments. And it was very striking um, because, of course, the, the NHS is entirely reliant on immigrant labour. And it was very striking that every news story reporting about Boris Johnson's treatment when he had coronavirus mentioned the nationality of the staff that he thanked. Yeah. It's not important to the fact that he's helping them, and except for the fact that he was one of the leading figures behind um, Brexit, which is, t- to a large proportion of the country's population, clearly motivated by shall we say, xenophobia. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, very interesting. Can, can I, can I um, circle back to the first story that we discussed briefly? Because I think it oh, mixed up here just a little bit. What, um, the, what, what I found most interesting about um, the, the story that Suzanne brought was the, I think it was the police pagan response. Let me pull it up here. Yeah, the police pagan response. Um, insisted that pagans are just regular law-abiding citizens observing their faith. Um, And they called this, um, what the son did, a hate crime. Um, And I thought that was really interesting, as if 
because uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about what would normally be called hate crimes uh, in the U.S. here in India, that people are attacking Muslims on the basis of nothing other than a conspiracy theory and the fact that they've perceived Muslims as their enemy. Um, we see the police pagan group using the same kind of, well, they're, they hate us, they're attacking us, um, we think this is a hate crime. And um, I, I found that wording really interesting because under under uh, British laws, is it true that um, making fun of a group in a newspaper is a hate crime that's uh, legally punishable? Well, there has been some incidents of like if you post something on Twitter that is like that, then it can be done. Um, you can get contacted by the police and cautioned or yeah, it can be, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was introduced a few years back. It's yeah. not very widely used, but the the threat of it being used is is quite widely used. But there were people arrested for for um, their social media posts and things like that. Um, it's, it's generally to be incarcerated. It has to be a little bit more serious than that. The, I think that there's a tension, um, or in in their depiction of themselves. They're just law-abiding citizens observing their faith, and their, you know, their beliefs or their faith has no political consequences for others. But for them, the news story from the Sun is something that does have political consequences. So it's interesting to me how, like, sometimes religious belief is described as speech that doesn't have consequences; it's just faith, and then sometimes it's described as something that has political consequences. Um, in which case, it's uh, largely received as objectionable to some people because, um, hey, religious groups should stay out of politics. It looks like mm-hmm. the police pagan group is using both of these at the same time. They are just holding their face when it comes to their um, speech, but the speech of the uh, the son is mm-hmm. a hate crime, not just a set of beliefs or doctrines or things that they hold true. Right, because the idea that religion is a right, this personal, um, private religion is a right that we hold in modernity, um, is part of the invisible episteme that surrounds, you know, post-Enlightenment colonial society. It's an unchallenged assumption um, that we have the right to practice our faith in private, even the language of faith and you know in private individuals yeah. it's the rhetoric of the of, you know 17th century of um <laughs> you know uh the creation of of um secularism and you yeah. know the birth of secular france and and the u.s um right there uh that is an unchallenged and unchallengeable um uh idea in the current it's it's enshrined in law. It's enshrined. It's a right. It's something which has a sacred and unalienable quality mm. in modern discourse. That was um, even um, that was very clear in the pagan federation response that said that the sun piece could incite religiously motivated discrimination, and then it also asserted the rights and protections like other faiths. So there's this constant discourse about um, well the pagans. Well, and also those who are pro-pagan in their reporting, that paganism is a nice group of people just like other religions. And it goes back into this rhetoric of good and bad religion as well, that um, 
you know, we were involved in for a publication with um, Adrian Herman and others um, about how uh, to be a bona fide religion, you have to be, you know, benign, you have to be harmless. So it is promoting, so the, yeah, the um, police pagans and the pagan federation are promoting this idea of, of pagans being harmless and a faith like any other faith. You're buying into the kind of normative Christian, perhaps, uh, structures for recognizing religion. We've been circling around ideas about, you know, the entanglement of uh, the category of religion and political ideology for about half an hour now. I'd like to spend the last few minutes of the episode um, on a story that, that Craig brought in um, on how political ideology is pushing religion out of religious studies. Um, tell us what this story is about, please, Craig. Yeah, so this is a, um, I would call it an editorial more so than a news story, published by the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. And from their about page, it looks like they are a conservative um group in North Carolina who are making public information about higher education that they think will be offensive to voters in North Carolina so that voters will hold their um, government responsible for putting a stop to this terrible stuff that's happening in higher education. And this particular story focuses on how political religious studies has become um, in the United States, and they basically claim that uh, there's no religion left in religious studies. Um, that it, to you, uh, let me let me read some of their words. Um, they say <clears throat> studying religion would seem to be immune to the current trends in higher education, focusing instead on theological concerns. That impression, however, is inaccurate. Religious studies, one of the most woke disciplines in American colleges, college campuses, is an ideological sheep in wolf's clothing, luring students, parents, and alumni into a false sense of security. Um, and it goes on to say that basically religious studies has no content, and as a result, leftist professors can use, use religious studies courses to push their own individual identity politics related to, for instance, LGBTQ um, activism. And my response to this is twofold. Like on the one hand, if you're going to talk about um, public education and religion in the United States, you have to talk about a very basic distinction between teaching religion and teaching about religion. You can't talk about higher education and religious studies in the United States while ignoring that. And they completely ignore that. Um, It's like they're intentionally obtuse about the fact that even if that distinction is not unassailable, it's relevant for this conversation, but they leave it out as completely irrelevant. But the other thing I think is interesting is that they're not wrong when they say that religious studies has become a potpourri of the latest progressive fads. Um, they say that religious studies lacks anything, uh, sorry, no, that's not the passage I wanted to read. So, uh, uh, I just want to say that the, 
the writer Mark William is actually um, seems to be a graduate in law, so they're just policing higher education. Hmm. Yeah, um, basically uh, through through the means of propaganda, they're policing higher education. Oh, I can't find the the passage I was looking for, um, but basically, they say that you know there are no fixed. Um, traditions in in religious studies in the sense i would say religious studies is a field and not a discipline that a discipline means that you have intro textbooks that are all the same right if you pick up a intro to algebra textbook doesn't matter who wrote it it's going to take the reader through the same basic things that are central to the knowledge of that subject matter if you pick up five different religious studies intro textbooks you're going to get five different versions of what's relevant to talk about here because it doesn't it's not grounded in a methodology it's not grounded in a set of central claims and therefore people can do whatever the hell they want sometimes in religious studies so i want to say like in a sense they're not wrong about that on the other hand they're completely ignoring um the distinction between teaching about religion and promoting religiosity are, are clearly not the same thing I mean, that's what was um, quite amusing about the um, column, about the editorial, was that we don't disagree with his analysis of the way it's taught in the academy. Um, But it's obviously, he's using inflammatory language, like this use of this term woke, um, you know, to, um, yes, I guess belittle and to... Yeah, woke is put... Woke is put in in scare quotes in in the story for yeah. obvious reasons. Yes. <laughs> well, and of course he reckon he recognizes leftism as a political ideology, but he doesn't seem to consider the you know what he would prefer it to be replaced with as being ideological at all. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah There's there's a portrayal of these leftists are using um, he says that the religious studies has become the perfect vehicle for indoctrination into leftist views. It seems like what they would like it to become is a perfect vehicle for the indoctrination of conservative views, but they don't admit that up front. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, hence, hence the uh, renewal, I suppose. Uh, I think it's also yeah, quite uh, ironic in that sense that, um, yeah, it's it's every time he points out the issues with the left perspectives and you know, say indoctrination and everything, what he's implying is um, he doesn't seem to recognize that what he wants is also political. It's also an ideology um, for a conservative brand um, and a theological study of religion. It sounds very much like Jordan Peterson. It's this kind of traditionalist. Um, couched as uh you know i'm simply objecting to the the left having gone too far and yet it's clearly uh you know a a relatively simple straightforward return to an imagined kind of (laughs) post-war situation yeah Yeah, there's a uh it's it's not a call to neutrality it's an a call a call back to well it may be packaged as a call to neutrality but it's Typically, once you scratch the surface, um, underneath the surface, you find that it's called back to a conservative agenda um, where certain conservative ideas were unquestioned and unchallenged in the academy. 
Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we've done a good job of challenging assumptions in the academy today and uh, challenging some assumptions in the news um, at the very least. Um, thanks for the discussion, Suzanne and Craig. It's been really fascinating. Uh, I only wish we could speak for longer and maybe we will in a future episode. But for now, thanks for taking part. Thanks for having us. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>